Good morning. How are you guys doing this morning? Good, good. And today we're finishing a three-part series um, that's called Before Christmas. Now, over the last couple of weeks, we have um, been reading through the Christmas story. And we've been reading through Matthew's account of the Christmas story. Um, and we've seen some, some really uh, unlikely Christmas persons inside the story. In fact, um, these two guys, actually neither one of them were present at the actual Christmas event. They were both a part of this story, but they were there from 700 years prior. These guys were the prophets. They were Isaiah and Micah. And um, they both recorded some sort of a prophecy about Christmas. So the week, the first week that we had this series, we saw Isaiah and he had a, a prophecy about when the baby was born, the baby was gonna be born to a virgin. And uh, of course we know her name to be Mary now, but he didn't have any idea. And then he told us this incredible thing about, about the baby, that it was going to be named Emmanuel, which meant God with us, God with us. And then Micah, Micah told us this same awaited one, this same baby that was going to come, the same king that was going to come, that one day, one day it was going to be the one that, um, even though it was going to come from an insignificant place, right? Bethlehem is where he was going to be born, and Micah tells us that this is where it was going to happen, this really insignificant town, and last week we talked about that this insignificant place had less than, less than probably 700 people that lived in it. And we were like, whoa, wait a second, we have some neighborhoods over here, right? If you just go in one of these neighborhoods, that they have more than 700 to 1,000 people that live in one of these neighborhoods. And that's all that came out of the insignificant little town of Bethlehem. And it came out of really a pretty insignificant family. Nobody would have known who Joseph and Mary were had God not chosen them to have Jesus. They were not very important. Until God chose to make them important. We talked about the fact that God likes to use insignificant things to do something significant. But then we saw something even more important last week. And that is that Jesus was sent to be our peace. And we said when we combine this idea of God with us, Emmanuel, that sometimes we struggle to know and to understand that God really is with us. And the great thing about peace is, is that peace helps us to know that God is with us because it's that feeling, that security that we have inside of us of knowing that even though everything doesn't look like it's okay, it's still going to be okay because God is the one who's got this. And that's peace in our life. And so God with us is confirmed by peace. Well, today we're going to continue on. We're going to finish off the Christmas story and we're going to see a third person who God used long before Christmas ever was, but I think this guy has one more incredibly powerful message for us. So if you have your Bibles, take them, open back up to Matthew chapter 2 as we continue to read the story together. And by the way, we will put it up on the screen, so if you don't have it, but if you do have it, I encourage you to open it up or turn on your phone and open it up to it. Because we're going to continue to read the story together. Now, while you're flipping there, let me just kind of catch you up a little bit on the story, right? Uh, tell you a little bit about what's been going on, because last week we saw um, the wise men, or the magi, right? Um, by the way, quick little side note about the magi. Some of you know this, some of you may not, but there were not necessarily just three magi. 
Sometimes we think of there being three magi because they brought three different gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh, but that doesn't mean that's how many guys that came to see Jesus. We just know that it was a group of them and that the group together had three gifts that they brought. So if you've ever wondered where it is that we get this idea of three wise men, it really comes from just the fact that um, there were three different gifts. Now, after hearing what the prophet Micah had said, right, that in the town of Bethlehem is where the Messiah would be born, the King Herod summons the wise men to come back and talk with him. And he has a secret conversation with them. And behind closed doors where nobody else can see or hear what it is that he's discussing with them, he tells the wise men that he's really excited. He's excited about this baby that's been born, and he wants to know exactly where the baby is at. So when they find the baby, after they're done worshiping, after they've given all of their gifts, come back and tell Herod where the baby is at so that he can go see this newborn king of Jews. Well, they, uh, they leave, right? They, they leave to go find the baby. Um, and when they do, the star that they have been following from the, from the east, it reappears. And they are so excited because they followed this star all the way into Jerusalem. They got to Jerusalem, which is where they thought the home of the king is, which it was. That's where King Herod was at. And they go to find King Herod because the star has kind of disappeared for a little bit. And then they find out that's not where the baby's at. And they're like, <clears throat> but they leave to head towards Bethlehem because that's what scripture has said. And as they're headed, the star reappears and they're overjoyed. And they follow it and they follow the news and they head down. And in Bethlehem, they find the baby. And I love this. We're actually not going to preach on this, but I just want to give you two of my favorite things from, from the wise men real quick. Two, two great things. First is their response when they meet Jesus. Their response when they meet Jesus is they fall down and worship him. And there isn't any more of an appropriate response than that when we encounter Jesus. But it's to worship him, to tell him that, hey, I love you. Here's the second thing. After meeting them, Scripture tells us that they went back home a different way. In fact, what it says is that an angel comes to them in a dream, and they are, are told, hey, listen, don't go back to Herod. And so they go home another way. And I, I love it. I heard it from an old preacher long ago, and I still think it's true. But uh, he said, said it this way. He said, once you meet Jesus, you can never go back home the same way again. I was like, that's so true. And here it was, these wise men, they met Jesus and they couldn't go back the same way that they had come to him. Well, that uh, drops us right back into our story. We're gonna be in verse 13 to start. So I'm gonna read it out loud. I'm gonna add a little bit of color commentary along the way, uh, and then we'll dive into what this prophet that we're gonna look at had to say today. Starting in verse 13, it says, Now, when they had departed. Now, just so that we're clear, that's the wise men that had departed, right? Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. And he said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt. And remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for this child to destroy him. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but this is the second time that an angel of the Lord, a messenger, has come to Joseph in a dream. 
right? The first time we saw that in week one, and we see that Joseph is told that there's going to be a, a baby, his name is going to be Jesus, and he needs to take Mary to be his wife, and Joseph gets up from that dream, and he goes, and he continues to have Mary as his wife, and at the end of chapter one, we find that the, the baby is born, and Joseph calls his name Jesus, right? Now, the first time that the angel showed up, the angel said what angels kind of almost always say, right? He says, hey, don't be afraid. Now, there's two different ways to understand the don't be afraid, right? He could be saying, don't be afraid about taking Mary to be your wife. That's every guy's fear when we're about to get married, right? We're like, oh, man, I'm not really sure that I'm cut out that Ryan will be there soon, all right? Right? But... He could have been saying that to him, but he could have also just been saying the same message that so many other angels have been saying. Because listen, a messenger from God stands in front of you, right? And he is whitewashed with the holiness of God because he sees God, he interacts with God. And when Moses in the Old Testament has this moment of interacting with God, the people had to shield themselves from Moses because of the glow that he had. So if you could imagine out of nowhere something appears like that that you don't really know you don't really understand i think i would be afraid and so usually the angel says don't be afraid but this time the second time that it happens right he doesn't say that in fact it's almost like this time he shows up and he's like hey joseph good to see you again right like we go way back like a couple years ago i was here and i gave you a cool message i'm glad to see that you listened to that one by the way Pretty cool thing going on, right? Jesus was born. Some cool stuff happening. You've had like some angels singing. You've had like shepherds come to see you. And these guys that just left, some wise men, they brought some pretty cool gifts, right? Told you this was going to be awesome. I'm like, like, they're like buddies. They're like pals that are going on. He doesn't say to him, hey, don't be afraid of me. He just says, hey, listen, here's the message from God. He tells him to rise up and to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because the guy the guy who thinks that he's king right is about to go on this total rampage and he's about to murder all of the babies in this area now this messenger in this moment right and Joseph kind of has to be thinking you know God's kind of been silent the last 400 years and the last two years he's talked to me twice nothing for 400 years twice in two years Right? I would be thinking, what makes me so special? Why does God want to talk to me so much? But here it was, he looks back and he says, it says this. It says, and Joseph rose and he took the child and his mother by night and they departed to Egypt. All right, so check this out. So the angel shows up. He gives this message to Joseph. And did you catch what it is that Joseph did? Joseph doesn't even wait till the morning to be obedient. Right? You see that? He took the child and the mother right there in the middle of the night. Guys, I think this is certainly a template for us to follow here. All right? If you want to move your family to another country, you need to wake your wife up in the middle of the night. Right? And that, that's the best way to do it because obviously it works. I'm just kidding. I don't think anybody should do that. But here it is. Joseph did not delay or dally in being obedient to what God had called him to do. 
The moment that he knew what it was that God was saying to do, he did it. You know, when I talk about the word sin with kids, I use this definition. I use that sin is anything that I think, say, do. It even has emotions. See, I, I, I've obviously done this a couple of times. But sin is anything that I think, say, do, or don't do that doesn't please God. Now, most of those are pretty easy. When you start thinking about it, you're like, oh, yeah. So if, if I think something bad, like if I think in my head that I'm going to murder somebody, I, I can understand how God would probably not be very pleased with that if he's a God who knows all things uh, and understands even, even my very thoughts. He probably wouldn't be very pleased with that. And then, you know, to say something, I mean, that's pretty easy. If I say something, that's, you know, I, I can understand, like, if I, if I cuss somebody out or if I um, tell somebody that I'm going to kill them or I'm going to hit them or any of those sorts of things, that, that he's probably not going to be very pleased with that. And if I actually do one of those things, I'm pretty sure that I understand that God's not pleased with that. But the one that always causes a stumbling block whenever I'm talking to kids about this is this idea of how do you get in trouble for not doing something? How in the world could you, how could it be a sin to not do something? You didn't do it, right? I mean, that, that was my excuse all through childhood growing up. I didn't do it. One time when I was talking with a, a really smart kid, he looked up at me and he said, Oh, when I don't do what my daddy says that I'm supposed to do, he says, I get a whooping. And the dad was sitting right next to me. The dad just got beat red because they're talking with the pastor at the moment, right, about, about sin. And he just said that my daddy gives me a whooping. And the dad's like, I don't really know how to react to this in this moment of stuff, right? But I was like, yeah, absolutely. If I was at home and my dad said to me to go take out the trash or to go clean my room and I kept doing whatever it was that I was doing, you better believe that I got in trouble, right? Because my dad had an expectation that I stopped what I was doing when I knew what he wanted me to do and did it immediately. And to not do that, right, that puts your life in peril in my house. And here it is, the same sort of thing. This is exactly right. This is what happens and probably happened in your household too. Right? I see Ryan was nodding over there with me a second ago. I'm picking on Ryan today. I'm making good eye contact with him over there. But God doesn't just desire eventual obedience out of us. Right? He doesn't just want us to eventually do what it is that we're supposed to do. He wants us to do immediate obedience. When we understand what God wants us to do, we're supposed to do it. Right then. Now sometimes, sometimes we know what God wants us to do and we're not sure we want to do it. Ever been there? Oh yeah. This week, let me tell you a story from my own personal life this week. This week I was at my family's favorite restaurant, Taco Bell. It's their favorite. It's cheap on the wallet. It works well. While I was in Taco Bell getting our food and waiting for it to be ready, um, there was this lady, and she had three kids with her, and the lady seemed somewhat distraught. She was standing, the three kids were sitting, um, the kids were all fussy about everything, and while I was standing there waiting for my food for an eternity, it always seems like when God's talking to your heart, things take a whole lot longer. And I was standing there, and God was like, hey, you need to minister to this lady. I was like, God, I'm waiting on some food to take to my starving family right now. <laughs> Right? This highly nutritious meal. 
do it. I had 18,000 other things that were on my mind that I wanted to do. And so I'm standing there, and the food's still not coming. And God still, I was like, but, fine, fine. So I leaned over, because there were some other people that were waiting on food, and I didn't want to make a scene about anything. And so I whispered in her ear, I was like, hey, is everything okay? She looks at me, and she says, yeah, yeah, everything's fine. She's like, I'm just waiting on a cab um, to help me to get back home. Um, and the kids are just restless because the cab hasn't shown up yet. All right, fine. Food shows up. I walk out the door. I'm halfway to my vehicle, and God's like, you didn't listen very well, son. He's like, I want you to do something. And I was like, oh, what do you want me to do? So I reached in my wallet and took out a $20 bill, and I don't tell you this to say, yay me. But I walked back inside, and I looked at the lady, and I said, listen, I don't know if you believe in God, but I do. And said, so as I was walking out, God very clearly told me to, to come back and just bless you with this $20 bill. I want you to have a Merry Christmas, and I walked away. As I walked away, I know that her eyes were filled up with tears, and I have no idea what was going on in her world on what things were there, but I know, but I know that that's what God wanted me to do, and that's what I was supposed to be obedient about, because I was able to get in my car and drive away after it was done. Sometimes we hear and feel the presence of God ringing in in our lives. We understand, we hear that whisper, we feel that little buzz, that tingling, but sometimes it's inconvenient. Sometimes we just don't want to do it. Eventual obedience may still be obedience, but immediate obedience is what's pleasing to God. And I love right here that Joseph was obedient immediately to God. You know what else it does? Immediate obedience trains not only our ears and our heart to sense and to hear the will of God, but it trains our hands and our feet to do the will of God. Let me say that one more time. Immediate obedience not only trains our ears and our heart to hear and to sense the will of God, but it also trains our hands and our feet to do the will of God. So let's continue on. And he remained there. That's Joseph. We pick back up with the story. Joseph remained there with his family in Egypt until the death of Herod. I love that statement too. Because check this out. Joseph continued to do what the last thing was that God told him to do. You ever heard God tell you to do something, you do it, and then you're like, now what, God? Now what? What do you want me to do next? What do you want me to do next? Where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? God's like, listen, I just told you what I wanted you to do. Keep doing it. Keep staying where I put you at. Keep being a part of what it is that I asked you to be a part of. I struggled with this one growing up, right? My parents 
and I believe the same thing, but they believe that you're called to become a member of a church. You, you look for a church and listen for God's calling to say, this is the place where you're supposed to join the fellowship of what God is doing and the, what he is building, and you join in with what God is doing. It has nothing to do with who the preacher is. It has nothing to do with how the music is going. You look and listen for where God says that you're supposed to be as a, as a member, as a part of the body of Christ. And growing up, I remember a time when things were really tough at the church that my family was a member at. And I had a conversation with my dad about, why don't you just leave? Why don't we just go somewhere else? If it's not working right, if things aren't good, why don't we just go somewhere else? And my dad looked at me, and I'll never forget what he said. But he looked at me and he said, God hasn't told me to leave. And until he does, I'm staying here. Because this is where God last told me to be. My dad understood the same thing that Joseph understood, and that is that you keep doing whatever the last thing is that God told you to do until God tells you to do something different. And then when God tells you to do something different, you do that. It doesn't matter what you used to do, it's whatever God just told you to do. Even if things weren't great, even if you don't like how the leaders are, even if you don't whatever, if God's called you to be somewhere, to be engaged somewhere, to be involved somewhere, then he has a reason for it that's well beyond any of those things that you do or don't like. I'm pretty happy to say that just last year my parents celebrated 25 years of being a member of that church. Same church. Because God called them to be there and they understood that they're supposed to stay and do the last thing that they knew that God called them to do. Here it is. Here's the third of the prophecies. It says that all of this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt, out of Egypt, I called my son. Let's pray. God, I thank you for, first of all, just for some of the words that have already come out uh, as we've been looking at this. Got powerful things about what it means to be in your will and to do the things that you call us to do and to keep doing them until you tell us to do something different. But God, there's still even some more that's here about talking about this prophet and this prophecy that was given. God, would you emblazon these words on our hearts? We might understand a little bit more about why Christmas about what this prophet understood before Christmas ever even got here, about how that helps us. Just give you glory and honor in your name. Amen. Well, the last two weeks we've mentioned that Matthew um, has five different prophecies that he either directly quotes or alludes to in the Christmas story. We've looked at two of them so far. This is the third one. This is actually the last one we're going to look at, right? Let's come back next Christmas to find out others. Sorry, I just want to make sure you keep coming back. Um, but I want to make sure that you um, remember some of the things that we've talked about about prophecy as we get ready to jump in. Some things about the, the nature and the pattern of prophecy. So let's look at the pattern real quick. Prophecy almost always has a, a three-part pattern to it, right? First, there's a, a problem. In other words, 
there's a context, a real problem that exists that the prophecy comes into that it addresses. Um, so when we think about it in this larger context, we got to go back and go, well, wait, what did it mean in its original context? What were they thinking? Because there was an original problem that it existed in. In addition to that, there's a promise that comes as a result of that problem. God says, hey, listen, I'm either going to remind you of or I'm going to give you a new promise about what it is that I'm going to do. And the prophecy also gives some sort of a provision about how God is going to do that. And so we've seen that over the last couple of weeks as we looked at Isaiah and as we looked at Micah. Here's the, the second thing I want us to know, and that's the nature of prophecy. Because prophecy is not this idea of, hey, there was a, a prediction and a fulfillment, right? We have that idea about how this, this goes in a straight line that this person makes a, a prediction about something and then we look down and there's either a fulfillment of it or there's not a fulfillment of it. And that's not exactly how prophecy uh, works. It's really more of this kind of like a, an onion sort of a thing. You, you peel it back in layers and you find pieces of it over and over again. It's kind of, um, instead of a straight line, it's kind of circular that you'll see the same patterns show up and the same um, fulfillments of it show up again and again and again. In fact, the prophecy we're going to look at today has at least three fulfillments. Yeah, I'll sink in for just a second, right? So at least three fulfillments of what it was that, that they were talking about. And so there, there's always some, some different contexts that were there. So let's jump into this prophecy. This prophecy is a little bit wow. You're like, wait, that's just a statement. Like out of Egypt, I called my son. You're like, you're going to tell me it's a wow. Yeah, I want to tell you that this is, for a little tiny statement, Matthew's doing a lot with this little tiny statement. First of all, before we even jump back into like where he quoted this from and what was going on, I want to tell you something that Matthew was using this to do. Because Matthew was very intentional about selecting this prophecy inside of this story and telling you that this is one of the five things that were fulfilled in the Christmas story. By the way, there were more that were fulfilled. Matthew chose five of them to highlight for us. But he very specifically choose, chooses this one because Matthew desired to show that Jesus is the new Israel. All right? Jesus is the new Israel. In fact, uh, in every way, in every way, the original Israel failed. Matthew is going to show that Jesus succeeds, right? Now, he's not the, the first guy to use this sort of a, 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 a template about how to do something. In fact, um, Paul, as he writes in the New Testament, he talks about the original Adam and the second Adam. Does the same thing. He compares Jesus to Adam, and he says, "Listen, here's the ways that Adam failed. Here's the way that Jesus um, succeeded where Adam failed." And so Matthew sets out with this goal of trying to help us to understand that it's not just us, his first-century audience of the Jews, that the country that they were, that everything they were supposed to live up to, that they utterly failed at, that Jesus had fulfilled all of it. And so it starts right here in chapter 2 where he uses this prophecy to show that Jesus literally, just like the nation of Israel, literally came out of Egypt. Right? He's a, he wants them to catch this illusion, this idea that they are like Israel. And in case they miss it, then in chapter 3 when he gets baptized, it's the same idea as when Israel crosses through the Red Sea. This through the water sort of a moment. And then in, in chapter 4, right, we find that 
he goes off into the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. The Israelites kind of wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. And then, while in the midst of that, right, they were tempted over and over again to turn their back against God, and they, over and over again, turned their back against God. In fact, one of them, one of them, just to highlight how much Matthew is, wants us to see this idea, one of them was the fact that they were like, God, did you bring us out here just to starve to death, right? And the very first temptation that the tempter brings against Jesus is he says, hey, listen, Jesus, I know you're hungry. Would you just turn these stones into bread? He's highlighting something. He's making this picture that says, listen, Jesus is the new Israel. And where Israel failed and Israel complained and Israel couldn't cut it, Jesus did. And in chapter 5, in chapter 5, where Jesus begins the discourse of his greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus gives kind of like, hey, you've been told this. Here was the commandments that you had. Here's the new commandment that I'm giving you, right? It mirrors the same moment that happened in the Israelites where they received the Ten Commandments from God. And so Matthew has a really purposeful reason for using this that he wants everybody to understand that Jesus is a fulfillment of everything that the Jews never could be as a nation. Huge. Here's the second thing. Matthew was intentional about using Hosea. By the way, all my ladies, you should be excited about this. Some of you, most of you just finished a, a, a long study on the book of Hosea. And he uses Hosea very intentionally. Now, Hosea was a contemporary of both Isaiah and Micah, 700 years before Jesus. Hosea, though, he prophesied mainly to the northern kingdom. If you've been here the last two weeks, we've talked about the fact that the kingdom split. There was a southern kingdom, Judah, and there was the northern kingdom. And there were two and a half tribes in the south, nine and a half uh, in the north. Some people tell you it's two and ten, but if you look it up, there's one that kind of goes halfway to both sides. So uh, I call it two and a half and nine and a half. So um, he was working with that northern tribe. And that northern tribe had done everything to turn their back on God. Right? In fact, in the series of time when Micah, or excuse me, when Hosea is um, prophesying, he's preaching to them. They have a series of king after king after king that the way they come into power is is that one king killed the other king right to become the new king. And it happens over and over and over again. It was just all kinds of wickedness that was going on. And so God tells Hosea to do something incredibly unusual. He says, Hosea, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go and to marry an adulteress a harlotry woman, right? Most scholars think that she was a prostitute before they got married, while they were married, and probably even after. Because that's just who she was. And you might say, whoa, whoa, wait. God told his prophet, the guy who was to speak for him and to tell everybody to go and to marry this woman who would constantly leave him? Yeah, and he knew it. He knew that's what God told him to do, and he did it anyways. And he did it because God said, listen, this is a picture of what Israel is to me. He said, Israel is just like your wife 
who continues to run off and chase after other things, thinking they're all going to fulfill it. Israel continues to run away from me, the place where she'll have all of her security, all of her sustainability, everything that she needs. Instead, she chases after other things. But God had chosen Israel, even though Israel was pining after other gods. Now, I love this, by the way. Hosea's name, Hosea's name means salvation. Salvation. And his demonstration of love and of choosing of his wife was her salvation. And Matthew, just by quoting this verse from Hosea, pulls all of this up to the forefront. He's dredging all of this up. But then he takes it one step further by quoting this verse because Hosea, Hosea in quoting it, is talking about a time when Israel was in captivity in Egypt. Right? It's a story that really the only way we can really kind of relate to how impactful and important this story was in the life of their country is to go back to what we talk about and how we view the Revolutionary War. We have stories about George Washington and about Paul Revere and about the Tea Party and all of these things that seep into our culture and help to make us who we are. And this story of the Exodus, right, of Israel being called out by God, out of their captivity, into the freedom of becoming a nation, has the same impact on their nation that the Revolutionary War has on ours. Just to give you a little bit of context. And Isaiah, or excuse me, Hosea was really pointing back to Exodus 4.22. Exodus 4.22 says this. This is God talking to Moses, right? And he says, Moses, you should go to Pharaoh, the guy who's in charge of all of Egypt, and you need to tell him that this is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son. And so I say to you, let my son go so that he could serve and I love this because in Exodus chapter 4, the people were still in captivity. In fact, this was God telling Moses what the full plan was. He tells Moses the entire plan. In fact, just after this, he tells him, listen, if they don't let my firstborn go, I'm going to take their firstborn out. He said, that's actually what's going to happen, Moses. I mean, I, God unfolds the entire plan. And so here it is, Hosea is reminding the people of their story of slavery with Egypt and about how God called them out. He gave them their freedom. He led them. It's a message of hope and a message of love. And Hosea drops it in because God's about to send Assyria in to do the same thing all over again. And he wants them to know before Assyria ever even gets here, he still loves them and there's still a hope for them. And I love how the, the ladies' ministry that they did, the Hosea study, the author, Jennifer Rothschild, puts it this way. Hosea is really all about one thing. It's about un, God's unfailing love changing everything. And Matthew was very intentionally pulling in all of those strings when he quotes this right here. I told you, little tiny statement, big, huge impact. Massive. 
because he wanted his readers, not just the Jews of the first century, but he really wanted you and I to wrestle with the question of why would God choose us? Why would God choose us? If you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Love leads to identity, right? Love leads to identity. This was the message that, that Matthew was trying to get through to all of his friends. It was the message that Hosea was, was trying to say to Gomer and to really all of northern Israel. It was the same message that Moses was trying to get through to Pharaoh and the first set of people that were chosen by God to be his people. Right? Because what we love always defines us. What we love always defines us. And what defines us becomes our identity. Now I could say something like, well, you're not sure what you love. You can just ask somebody next to you and they'll tell you what, what you love. But here's a simpler truth. You love the world. You know how I know that? Because the world defines you and the world gives you your identity. So you love the world. And the really, really ugly thing about that is, is that that means then that the world gets to tell us such things like if you're successful or not. The world tells us if we're successful or not. If you're beautiful or ugly, the world gets a chance to tell us those sorts of things. If you're rich or poor, if you're smart or you're dumb, whatever it is, whatever label you want to have put on yourself or maybe has been put on yourself has come from the world. You've heard it from them and somewhere along the way, because you love the world, because you value them, your identity gets tied up in what the world says about you. Matthew and Hosea understood what Egypt represented. You see, Egypt represented the world. It represented whatever things, whatever places, whatever vices hold us captive and prisoner today. Something in your life feel like a prison? Something feel like an undue hardship? It's in Egypt. It's in Egypt. And check it out. God sent Jesus into Egypt and then called him out of it. God sent him into Egypt and then called him out of it. But here's the problem for you and I. Here's the problem about when we talk about what we love defines us. problem is we can't change what we love. We can't change what we love. That's really hard, isn't it? You'd like to be able to change what you love. You'd like to be able to say, well, I, I'll, just, I, I'll just love God. I, I, I can change what I but you can't. It's impossible. I 
And this is why I love about this prophecy. Because while we're just like Israel, right? We continue to go after and find our identity in everything else. Jesus is the true Israel. And unlike Gomer, right? Jesus is the faithful one. And because of that, and then check this out, because Jesus loves us, everything can be changed. John, one of the guys who hung out with Jesus for three plus years, at the end of his life wrote this. He says, we love because he first loved us. In other words, because of Jesus, because he loved us and he was called out of Egypt because he existed on the outside of it and he could set us free from whatever it is that was defining us, we can change our identity. Actually, we can't. He can. He can change our identity. Let me see if I can just kind of put a little bow on this whole series for us for a second. Because what Matthew has said in the last two chapters is this, is that Jesus means that God is with us. Jesus provides the peace that confirms that God is with us. And then Jesus, through his love, changes our identity or who we are because we no longer have to be defined by the world that's around us. In other words, we now have a choice because of Christmas. Whereas we didn't have a choice before, because of Jesus, we now have a choice, and that is Christmas. That's the beauty of it. It's the beauty of everything about this time of year, is that we get to celebrate that a God is with us, that we can really know it, but the only way that all of that can happen is because of a choice that we get to make. A choice to say, yes, Jesus, I don't want to be in Egypt anymore. I want to be called out of you. Will you call me out? Will you bring me out of whatever it is that's got me trapped? Will you change my identity? Will you change what it is that the world is telling me? I don't want the world to tell me anymore about who I am. I want to hear from you, the one who actually created me, the one who made me, the one who designed me, who it is that I am supposed to be. Will you call me out? That's Christmas. That's what Christmas is all about. Christmas means that we have a choice. So what about you? Are you going to miss out this Christmas on the real meaning of Christmas? Are you going to miss out on having the choice about where you get your identity from? Don't miss out this Christmas. Don't miss out. God, I thank you for just a huge, huge truth. 
so thankful that you called Jesus out of Egypt. First of all, I'm thankful that you threw him into Egypt. I'm thankful that you had Jesus come into this world. God, a world that is broken, a world that is filled with sin. That's hard to argue against that. We look out and see the brokenness of this world all the time. But God, at Christmas time, I see a glimpse. I see a glimpse of a different world. A world filled with your peace. A world filled with your presence. God, I pray that seeing that would help us to understand the choice that you're giving us. For just a second with nobody looking around. If you are honest with yourself right now, and the question was asked to you about where it was that you would spend eternity, sent Jesus to give you a choice. A choice about where it was that you would spend eternity. You don't know the answer to that choice. In the end, I'll be at the back standing there, and I would love to share with you about how to know Jesus and to have your life defined by something totally different. God, I give you all of the glory and the honor as we continue in your name. Amen.